We're starting a series called Starting Point. It's a conversation about faith. Now, this actually comes from a, a curriculum, an actual a group. It's kind of an introductory small group that we do uh, once every other year or so. And if you've been to Starting Point, hopefully you've been to Starting Point here at some point. But um, it, it's, we, we decided as of this year, like, well, let's just take the whole church through it. Because there is some, some real uh, incredible stuff that we, we need to talk about when it comes to our faith. What is our faith tied to? What are the foundations of our faith? How do we grow in our faith, especially if that's a, a goal of yours this year and the, and the coming year to actually grow spiritually and grow in your faith? I want to help us all kind of maybe even restart or have a restarting point for our faith. And again, maybe you're new to all this and you haven't had a starting point at all. You haven't had anything and you need a starting point. You need somebody to kind of shorten the gap between what you've experienced, what you've heard and versus what you've experienced. You need someone to shorten that gap. And that's what we're going to hopefully do uh, in this series, all right? But everything has a starting point. So this is obviously something you already know. Everything has a starting point. I was literally thinking about New Year's Day, because I mean, we all know what people, most people do on New Year's Eve, right? And you probably did some of it yourself. Let's just be honest. How many of you guys saw midnight? Just raise your hand if you actually saw midnight. That's way more of you than I thought. All right, so you saw, this is why we had an 11 o'clock only service. All right, you saw midnight just barely and then crashed. I understand. Um, but on New Year's Day, you, I don't know if you guys know this, and I'm going to ask this again. I don't know how many, you know, tr I don't know if it's a Southern thing, to be honest. It was introduced to me when I first came and met my wife in, you know, North Carolina and in the South. Uh, but how many of you guys know, like, how many of you guys are going to eat today? Just to hear this. How many of you guys are going to eat some version of black-eyed peas, greens, cornbread, or I think it's pork or ham? Raise your hand if you guys are going to that's a lot of people, okay? Now, that might be normal Sunday for you, too, okay? So I understand that. But it's, it was funny to me. I was introduced to that. Now, I don't know if it was a Canadian thing. My parents didn't. I don't remember being introduced to me. I don't remember that in the North at all. But when I came down here, my wife didn't make a huge deal of it. But, you know, that was, that was country cooking. That was Southern cooking. That was most Sundays at her grandma's house, actually. But there was something hilarious about hearing about, oh, no, it's the first day of the year. You got to eat uh, 365 black eyed peas. You have to, I'm like, what? You know, I thought black eyed peas were a band. You know, I mean, I was, I, that was my understanding of the vegetable at that point, you know, but no, there was peas and all of it had to do with luck and wealth and the collards and all that's in the green. So it was interesting. So I started looking it up and I wanted to know where was the starting point for some of this tradition. And some people actually trace it back all the way to 1863 with the emancipation and uh, some of that with, with slavery and the roots there. Uh, some actually say it's further than that. They can take it back to West Africa and European uh, traditions. Uh, depending on what country you're in, Italians like to eat lentil uh, for good luck. Uh, lentils for good luck. Uh, if you're in China or Japan, they actually like new, long noodles. They do long noodles on, on January 1st because it's like longevity. And there's a lot of that kind of tradition. It's really interesting. But again, I, I went back and I was like, well, there's got to be a starting point. Like people just didn't show up one day and go, you should probably eat this. It's good luck for you. You know, there always is a starting point. And what, and what I thought about with faith is our faith, everybody's faith in this room has a starting point, whether you remember it or not, whether you know it or not, like whether you for most of us, and I say most of us, meaning in terms of the traditional South, your starting point was at some point as a child right? You went to Sunday school, you went to VBS, you went to a camp, you went to a temple or a church or something, and you received, your starting point in faith was somebody telling you a story and somebody, you know, trying to explain God to you in a way that was a little bit simple. And, and so for a lot of people, the faith came to us, it was handed to us from someone else. And I, I think I say this quite a bit at our church, but 
a majority of people's faith starts by what people, what somebody told them that the Bible said and what it meant. Everybody with me? That somebody, somebody told you what the Bible said. You didn't, you didn't read it on your own, but somebody told you what it said, and then they told you what it meant. And I understand it's okay for kids to a degree, but there's a lot of adults that are still sort of living that way. Their faith is still tied to, is still attached to this sort of childhood faith where a great deal of what they know is tied to what someone else tells them, the Bible says, or what someone else tells them the Bible means and what the Bible meant when it said that. And some of this comes down to, and and you're going to, I mean, again, this year as a church, we'll talk more about it over the next few weeks, but we are going to put a much higher emphasis, hopefully you, you know we already do this, but we've decided as a staff and as a team that we want to put a higher emphasis on you engaging in the Word of God on your own, okay? So when it comes to the Bible, we want you to, to really pick up some, we're going to do some online reading stuff. We told you about that in December. Uh, we're going to have some reading plans. We're going to have some encouragement. To, if you don't own a Bible, please take a Bible out in the, in the little uh, doors there. There's Bibles for you if you've never owned your personal copy. You prefer to read it on your phone, no problem at all. You can read along on your phone. Uh, but we're going to do some things that hopefully encourage you. However, I want you to understand that for most of us, again, as children, we were presented this as a book, which it's not, by the way. We, we were presented this oftentimes as the foundation of our faith, and, and it's not. So as, as a kid, and maybe raised in church, and maybe as an adult raised in church, there was maybe some emphasis put on the Bible or at least a lack of context, because every generation got a little bit more lazy in terms of what they assumed the generation previous knew or understood. And they ended up really kind of doing a disservice, not only to the context of what God created when, the, when his word was put together, but understanding that this really isn't the foundation of your faith. Because listen, your faith is only as strong as to what it's tied to. Does that make sense? Your faith is only as strong as what it's tied to. So for a lot of people, I just want to help you. I know it's going to sound weird. We're putting a huge emphasis on the Word of God in the Bible. But I want you to understand that the Bible says, right? Well, the Bible says this is not an adequate starting point or even returning point for most adults. It's just not an adequate starting point. It's not going to necessarily, I'm not saying it's going to hold up because it will, but it's, it's, not, it's not presented in the right order. It's not presented to us in the right way. Just to say, well, the Bible says this isn't supposed to be the starting point for our faith. Why? Especially for many adults. Um, many of them were handed this. They didn't know, they may, they were possibly handed it handed it to them and said, well, don't let anything sit on top of it. How many of you guys have ever heard that? Don't let anything sit on top of it in the house. You know, don't put your coffee on it. Don't do this. Don't do that. It was very, it was very revered, right? Um, you believe that you were told that it was an errant. You were told that it was, and I believe that it is. And you were told that this is the word of God. And I believe that it is. Um, but it was kind of presented as this book, although you never actually saw anybody read it at your house, right? Nobody ever actually read it. And maybe you had a big giant family Bible like this, and it was laid out to a really cool page, you know, at Easter or something, and, and it was laid in one of those, how many remember those Bible holders in, in your house? Yeah, you had Bible holders? Yeah, in your house. That's what it was. And then you, you remember grandparents and parents are like, don't ever touch it. Don't even look at it. That's probably not the message we wanted to give the children, right? 
But, but the problem is, is that so much, so, so much of, of, of what people struggle with today are the actions and beliefs that have been aligned with this book that have nothing to do with what's in this book. Everybody with me? I mean, guys, slavery was justified by this book. That's atrocious. The problem is nobody ever, ever bothered to look in the book or open up the book. And so for many adults, just hear me say it, this is not adequate. Just to say, well, the Bible says this and the Bible says that and you need to believe this is not an adequate starting point for your faith because that's not what our faith is supposed to be tied to. And the, here's the great news, right? It was never meant to. It was never intended to be the starting point for people's faith. I mean, guys, we had 250, at least conservatively, probably 300 or more that we can tell historically, but the church, okay, the church that we're a part of right now, the church, the church saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ with huge faith, faith that would, I mean, honestly dwarf Western faith, that would die for their beliefs under persecution and horrible times. And like, this is the kind of faith that they had. And there was no Bible to tell them anything. There was no, the Bible says this and that. There wasn't any of that. There was no, it wasn't even put together in that period of time. It wasn't even compiled. They didn't have a New Testament. They had some documents and letters and letters to the church and things like that, but, but they didn't have a, well, the Bible says this to fuel their faith. And so I, the question that I have is, where's your starting point? That's what we're going to kind of address today. Where is your starting point? Where is it? I believe it should be the same place that those hundreds of years, those Christians began their starting point and began their faith journey. Although we are on the other side and we do have the Bible, we do have this beautiful collection of documents and historical documents and poems and literature and, doc and, 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 and gospels and accounts and you know, journals and letters to the church. I mean, we have this amazing thing that God preserved and gave us, but I still believe our starting point should be the same as theirs. So I want to talk about a few different groups of people today, talk about an encounter that we have recorded for us to see, as again, I present to you that this shouldn't be our starting point, but there is importance in terms of how we view and read the Word of God and understanding how our faith is tied to the actual starting point of our faith, the actual starting point in our life. There are three groups of people that we're going to look at. Two of them are going to come from an encounter that we have recorded for us with a guy named Paul, all right? And today we're going to be reading from uh, the Acts of the Apostles, okay? So the Acts of the Apostles is like a travel journal. It was written by a guy named Luke who was a physician. He also wrote the account of Jesus called the Gospel of Luke, all right? And he wrote this sort of travel journal of the early apostles, which were like the disciples, and then Paul, kind of the apostles' work as they, you know, started and planted all the churches. And a lot of Paul's you know, missionaries' journeys are all in there. And listen, nobody, nobody historically uh, uh, you know, argues with the fact that there was a physician named Luke who wrote the account of the Gospels and also wrote this Acts of the Apostles. There's also very few people who would argue historically that there wasn't a guy named Paul who helped plant all the churches. Right? So we talk, talk about empirical evidence. Like We have a ton of historical evidence on who these men are, so this journal, this, this tracking and account of 
of all the stuff that was going on in the early church, especially the work and the Acts of the Apostles, is recorded for us. And one of the cool encounters we're going to read today, this is after, if you know some of these stories that Paul and Silas were in the, I think we read this back in November, I think, Paul and Silas were in the jail cell and they were worshiping God. And I think Pastor Mike, actually, that was one of his messages talking about just what that worship looked like in, in, in the bottom of that prison and jail cell. Um, but after that, in, on the journey, Paul is traveling to a couple of different regions. And we're going to read from Acts 17. Now, again, a little bit of difference uh, for this year is we are going to ask you guys to read along uh, a couple of different passages on Sunday morning, all right? So yes, we are still going to have them on the screen. Yes, we're still going to have lots of scripture for you to see and to engage with because I personally enjoy that, being able to point things out. But we're going to make it a habit every single Sunday to have something that you and I read together from your copy of God's Word, from my copy of God's Word, and you read along. You guys with me? Nod your head? Yeah? All right. So you go ahead and open it up, get your Bible app out, get your Bible in front of you. You need a Bible. There's ones in the back as well. Um, we'd love for you to read along with this. This is going to be a portion of this encounter with the first group of people that, Paul's, that Paul has uh, with a group in Berea is the name of it. We're going to start, and again, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, in case you're still trying to find it. Acts of the Apostles is the fifth book in the New Testament. Paul and Silas in Berea, we're going to start in verse 10, all right? It says, that very night, the believers sent Paul and Cyrus, Silas to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. I'm reading from the NLT, by the way, the New Living Translation. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. And as a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. But when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and they stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on the, onto the coast where Silas and Timothy remained behind. And those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. And then they returned to Berea with instructions to Silas and Timothy to hurry up and join Paul. This first group of people is what I, who I like to call the ones who know. The ones who know in part is a better way to, to, to describe them. They are the ones who know in part. These were these Bereans, and oftentimes you hear them called Bereans because these Bereans were very dedicated, devout Jewish followers who were meeting in the synagogue, just continuing to follow God. And when Paul met them, they were open-minded, meaning that they had a good foundation of understanding of God's word, but they, they didn't know everything. They didn't know the full picture. They didn't have the full understanding, especially when it came to the revelation of Christ. So as Paul shared with them, he noticed, well, they're way more open to this conversation than, than those jerks in Thessalonica, right? Like way more open to this. So he continued to have this conversation. Now, notice what, what, what Luke records for us is that the Bereans looked at their scripture, their Old Testament, Okay, they looked at their scrolls and their scriptures just to look at what Paul was teaching and tried to match it up and say, well, is this true? Is this right? Does this match up? Does this align? And they found out that it did, that it was in line and aligned with what they already believed about God. 
And so many of them became followers of Christ. And many Greek, right, those people who had kind of probably converted to Judaism or, you know, been a part of some of their friendships and inner circles with these, these Jewish folks, many Greek women and men who knew the Word of God had some foundation, believed, and became believers in that. So this group that I call kind of the, the already had some or they, 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 already know, they already know, or at least in part, this particular group there's two sides of a coin, all right? And I know that you've met these people before, but one side of the coin that tends to be more negative are the people that, you know, they kind of know just enough to kind of lock in some core convictions, some core foundations, but they're not really open to much anything else. You guys with me? They're, just not, they're not open to having too much other conversation. They're actually some of the ones that probably use the word the Bible says more than other people in your life right? Because in their mind, the Bible says it, that settles it. How many of you have ever heard that statement before, right? The Bible says it, that settles it, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes the problem is they honestly might be missing something like many Jewish people were. Like they, again, they had the Old Testament, but they were missing the revelation of Christ. They were missing the understanding of grace. They were missing the heart of God. They just, they just were missing in some of this. And so sometimes there's a negative side to those who somewhat know, or at least feel like they know, and, and in part, they don't have that humility, right? That they don't have that humility to realize that God might still want to teach them something that God might still have a revelation for them, God might still have something for them in his word to teach them that they don't know yet. Again, the positive side are those who are more open-minded, which is the way Paul describes the reason. Like, they were all like, hey, we've got this amazing foundation, and now we're hearing about Jesus, and they didn't want to take it as just face value. They actually went back and looked and read and studied, and like, yeah, that lines up, and that makes sense. And so I think there's a good side of the coin to that, too, those who have a good foundation and understanding of Scripture. The second group is the group I call those who do not know. And again, this is, this is pretty self-explanatory. Paul goes from those who had a good foundation, that knew, or at least a knew in part, and then he gets rushed off to Athens, and then he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come along. So let's pick up here. This is going to be picking up if you're already reading along. Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw everywhere in the city right? All the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He said, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. And he also had a debate with some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. Now, just to give you some context, Epicureans were more or less known as people who didn't feel like you could, they were one of the people that they, they kind of felt like, well, you can't really know anything right? So they just sort of entertained every possibility. You guys know any conspiracy theorists in your life at all? Okay, okay, good. All right. You know how they just, you can't really know, so you just sort of entertain every little conversation. That's kind of this Epicurean uh, group. But the Stoic philosophers were those who, when they say Stoic, it means they felt like they could pretty much understand everything if you just gave them enough time, right? You give us enough time and enough reason, enough argument, we can circle back and kind of close every gap and figure all this out. Well, he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, and they said, what's this babbler trying to say, right, with all these strange ideas that he's picked up? Another said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, this was a problem, okay, because again, they had lots of idols, they had lots of stuff, but you weren't allowed to just introduce something new. You weren't allowed to introduce a foreign god to their group. 
So they had a debate, so they, they, they took him to the high council, right, of the city. And the Greek reads this as the Areopagus, uh, right? Areopagus, that's right, Areopagus. So this was an area, but this is also where the high council met. Come let us tell you, come tell us about this new teaching, they said. Because they do recognize this as new. It's not something that they already know. You're saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's about. Now, view this more as an inquisitor. We want to know more about what it's about. Not necessarily curiosity for the gospel, but more just like, we need you, like you've been babbling about some stuff, and it's definitely not in line with anything else we have. So we need to have this conversation, and we need to take it to the Areopagus, and we need to uh, uh, you know, talk about this with the high council. Now, again, going back to the kind of the historical idea, keep going. Uh, it should be explained that all Athenians, as well as the foreign, foreigners in Athens, they seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas, hashtag social media. You guys with me? All right. So, so you know, this is not brand new, right? So you got the Athenians who are like, wide open to the discussion of possibilities. And I mean, if they had social media back then, Lord help us all, right? In terms of comments and discussions. And I don't know if you guys ever feel that way going through social media, but you know, it's, it just gets exhausting. Nothing seems to get accomplished, but a lot seems to get discussed. Nod your head if you're in agreement, right? So this is the culture in Athens. And again, this is a real place. You can go to Athens today this is the Areopagus. This is the the kind of the, this is a, basically a rock mountain that the city was kind of put around, and they just used this as a place. It's got some historical stuff, like it's called Ares. It's named after Ares because they feel like one of their uh, stories is Ares was judged there by the gods, and uh, Latin for Ares is Mars, Mars Hill. You guys know what I'm talking about. Have you ever heard Mars Hill in the Christian context? Yep, that's named after this place. This is Mars Hill. This is Ariopagus, and and you could go there today. Matter of fact, I laughed when I when we were talking about this because Pastor Don, one of he's still on our A team. Uh, he just got to go. Him and Stacy got to go this past month. Uh, they got to go, and so this is one of the first pictures he sent me. It was like, I'm here. I'm standing on top. You know, it's amazing. But you could go, and I don't know who that is inscribed their initials, but that's pretty cool um, for a historic site. That's awesome. All right, so probably European. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's a beautiful spot, even though it's kind of rocky and hilly. But it gives you an idea. This was a big deal for them. It's, it was in the center of the city. It looked over the city, and this is where the high council met. So here's now Paul speaking to the high council as we continue. He addressed them as follows. He said, men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking around, walking along, I saw your many shrines, your many idols, your many, you know, and one of your altars had the inscription on it, to an unknown God. Meaning that you guys had so many things out there, you even had an altar for the God, the just in case God that you, in case you missed one. You guys with me? to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing, oh, sorry, go back. I hadn't finished that one. This God whom you worship without knowing in ignorance is the one I'm telling you about. So what he was trying to do is he was trying to help them understand, uh, you guys think it's new. It's not new. You guys just didn't know. You're worshiping an unknown God, and I'm here to tell you that he is a known God. So he goes on to say, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. Now, this was already going to be a problem for them, but he keeps going. 
And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. And it says, for one man, he created the nations through the, through, the, uh, through the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Again, taking kind of them down to the history of this. And he goes on to say, his purpose was that the nations would seek after God and perhaps even feel their way towards him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Again, I'll just, I'll just pause and say, what I love about Paul's kind of approach Again, he approaches the Bereans, and it's all about what they already know and adding on what they didn't know yet. And here he's looking at a group that does not know. They don't know. And, and he says, look, you sort of know, but you don't know. But let me help you kind of align. Number one, you guys think, that, you know, again, in, all, every, in every pagan religion, the God's, the God's purpose or the purpose that the God's had for you was for you to serve them. Right? You had to meet their needs. You had to build them idols. You had to build them temples. Like, you, you had to do all these things. And he says, like, yeah, this God that you, you're worshiping in ignorance, like, he doesn't need any of those things because he, he brings everything. Like, everything good you have comes from him. Everything that's, that, 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 that has ever happened came from him. You can't satisfy his needs. He is actually the one who satisfies Needs. And then I love the language he uses because he wants to use their kind of almost philosophical language. Like he, he had this desire that you would feel around, you know, that you would, you would reach out to look for him, that the, the, the nations would, would desire something to find him, even though he's not far away. And then he goes on to say, for in him we live and move and exist. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I love that too, because he literally uses, we, it would be like us using movies or songs or something like that. He uses some of their own language and poets to say, you know what? Even your poets have kind of brushed up against this. Even your poets have sort of brushed up against the fact that we all belong to him. Like there's, a, there's this God who's bigger than your idols and your temples. And he goes on to say, and since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. And I love this because he goes on to say, look, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. Now, this, 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 where Paul is going here doesn't fit sort of our modern evangelical culture because we sort of feel like we should just be able to present God and then just kind of like, here you go, right? And Paul does that and even uses their language to help desire him. But he says, look, God used to be okay with the people who didn't know any better, but Jesus has come to make himself known, and I'm here to help you know. And so now that you know, you can't unknow. Right? Now that you know, like he's not going to be okay with the fact that you choose not to, he's going to require you repent. He's going to require you to take action and repent of your sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man. Okay, he's talking about Jesus. He has appointed and he proved to everyone this. Right? He gave proof to this by raising him from the dead. He gave proof to all of this. By raising him from the dead. Again, he had already been talking about the resurrection. 
Now, this is one of the reasons I love the Bible. This is one of the reasons I know that it was God-inspired. And even though men were a part of writing and documenting and story, like it's so not coming from men. Because if this was from men, if this was from men trying to push a religion, trying to push an agenda, the end of this story would look very different. Paul presents this and he ends with, look, justice is coming. Judgment is coming. You got to repent of your sins. He's not going to overlook the ignorance anymore. This is a God who's made himself known to you. And they proved it right over there when he raised him from the dead. <laughs> and this, this is how, again, Luke records this for us. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some... Just read the words out loud. What? Some sneered. Some laughed with contempt. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like the laugh of somebody going, <laughs> like you're ridiculous. See, if it was just a Bible story, if it was just man writing a story, it'd be like, oh, they all burn their idols, and they all, you know, and that's kind of the way we usually like to think how Bible stories go. But this is a real interaction. This is what Luke records in terms of Paul's journey and says, look, I presented this, and they just laughed. Some of them just laughed. Yeah, we're not trying again. Others said... We want to hear more about this later. So here's this high council. And the moment he brings up the resurrection, that there's proof that you can know this God, some of them just immediately dismiss it. Because they don't know, and what they think they know, they, you know, is what they know. Some want to hear more. And it says, this ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Man, I love that interaction. Because we do engage a lot with people who do not know. And yet this is a God who made himself known through Jesus. Now there's a third group. There's a third group. And we're going to jump to another letter. Uh, the author's unknown, but it's to the Jewish people. It was to the Jewish believers, the church. Again, similar to who Paul was already writing to. It has very similar language to Paul. But, but it's, it's written to the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew people. It's called Hebrews. That's why they call it the Hebrews. And this third group is, is who I call um, ones who should know, but they assume and presume a lot. Because there's ones who know, or at least know in part, and there's ones who don't know, but there's another group that should know. They should know. But a lot of it, when you get past the surface, seems to be assumption and presumption. And here's where we pick this up in Hebrews 5. The author is explaining in great detail how Jesus came and fulfilled prophecy and how his work, again, you know, kind of, kind of connecting the dots for the Jewish people. He's the prophet. He's the king. He's the, he's the high priest. Like, he's all the things we ever needed. Jesus came to fulfill those things. And then he says this. There is so much more that we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Now, I don't usually end my messages that way, right? But the author pauses in this letter to point something out. 
that he's a little bit frustrated, and he uses some great language to help you understand where these people were. He said, look, there's a lot more I'd like to explain to you, but you guys are, it's dull, like you're spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen. Don't you hate giving people advice or having a conversation with them and looking at their dumb eyes and you know that they're not listening to anything you say? You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, that never happens to me when I'm preaching to you. I just want you to know. That never happens. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, isn't it, crazy, isn't it just crazy when you're having those conversations and somebody's just like, I'm not going to pay attention to a single thing you're saying. Okay, parents of teenagers know this look. And this is the author. The author's like, it is complex. There, there is context. There is something to understand at a deeper level, but you're not there. And he goes on to say this. You've been believers so long now. You really ought to be teaching others, but instead you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies. <laughs> You're like infants who need milk and can't eat solid food. It doesn't get any better than that. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know what is right. He's talking just about their maturity. And I love this word. He says, solid food is for those who are mature. Through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. I love the, the words there. Again, uh, Hebrews just says, there's this, there's this practice that you don't have. You're not there yet. You should be. You ought to be, but you're not. You're not there. And, and the problem with this particular group, which quite frankly, I see this group much more just rampant in Western culture, in Western Christian culture, is this group who should know more. They, they have labeled Christianity. They're wearing the shirt. You know, they've, they've got the bumper sticker on the car. They've, they've got the right words on the surface. But if you peel back a layer, a layer, there's nothing there but assumptions and presumptions. Because they're still living, as we said earlier, they're still living off of what somebody told them the Bible said and what it meant. That's where they are. Which is how, guys, this is how we arrive in a culture that just sort of believes a whole lot of nonsense that people just try to convince them can be Christian. Like here's this incredibly humanistic worldview. Oh, you can be a Christian and believe that. You can be a Christian and believe in karma. You can be a Christian. You can be a Jesus follower and line up with these things. And there's two primary reasons that I think it happens. One is the individualistic kind of culture that we are inheriting. And when I say inheriting, what I mean is over the past several decades, we've had kind of this collision course, if you will, of, of humanism and relativism that have sort of like clashed, and, and, and when you clash and bring together humanism and relativism, the baby they produce is individualism, okay? The baby they produce is an individualistic culture where everything is about me and for me and around me. And when, it's, and when you convince yourself that you're thinking about other people, you're really not thinking about anybody else. You're just thinking about you in light of other people. That's an individualistic culture. But the second reason, guys, is... is we are one of the most biblically illiterate generations that have ever existed. 
Like it's, it's a strange thing to have the Word of God more accessible to us than we've ever had in the history of the world. And more people that don't know what it says. They don't understand it at all. And they don't even bother to look. Why? Because they believe they should know. They, they ought to know. And they just assume and presume what they read, what they see, what they hear. Oh, that's probably what the Bible says. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. They don't even know how to use it. Like when we talk about the Bible, we, we oftentimes will read 2 Timothy, where Timothy you know, gives us the incredible words about the inspired word of God, and it says it's used to teach us. It's used to correct us, right? To rebuke us, number one, tell us we're wrong. To correct us, meaning that it offers a solution, not just a, not just a nay, but a, but a yes. And then it equips us to have the faith we're supposed to have. Like that's the purpose of this word of God, this collection of scriptures. Like it's why it's there. And yet the illiteracy that we see is outstanding. So it's no wonder that so many people's faith is so small. Because it's really not rooted in what it should be rooted in. So going back to just that original question as we wrap up, I just want to want to give you a quick challenge, okay? And help you understand the tie-in in terms of our faith, our, our faith does not sit on and rest on the Bible as an originating source. The Bible does not start, it is not the genesis of our faith. What is your starting point is based on a question. It's actually based on the answer to a question. And it should be this way for everyone, right? Your starting point is the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And no matter what group you find yourself in, you do have to answer that question because it's going to, it's going to deal with the strength of your faith that your faith is tied to. If Jesus is someone you, you think you know, but you only know him in part, you know him because a Sunday school teacher told you about him, you know him because a parent or a grandparent taught you some good things about him. You know him because, you know, you were a kid one day and they, and they talked about hell and you didn't want to burn in hell, so you got saved, right? Because nobody really wants to go to hell, so you got saved. But it's stagnant from that point on. There is no completion to the picture. You only know in part. Or maybe you don't know him at all. And that's possible. I'm, I mean, there's people who have been coming to church for years who still don't know Jesus. They can't answer this question. I mean, they might know, hear me say the words, they might know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. There is no relationship. They, they don't understand, like they, they still sort of view him as an unknown, even though he came to make himself known. Or maybe you find yourself in the group that you should know a whole lot more. You should know him so much better. I mean, you've been around the church family for a long, 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 long time. But, but you just don't know him like you should. You just don't know him the way you could. And this is where it brings us back to 
his word. And, and here's where I would say this, guys. When your faith is tied to who is Jesus, and you want to know more about your Savior and about what he did for you and about what his work was for you when he came here, then you can't, listen, you can't help but read and devour the Gospels. You can't help it because it reveals what Jesus has done for us. It supports our faith in him, in this God who made himself known to us. And when you want to know more about how he works in and through you and how, he, how the Holy Spirit works in and through his people, then you, then you can't help but dive in and read the letters to the church and read about how, how the Holy Spirit worked in and through the saints and the apostles and those under, under Paul and Peter and everybody else and how the, the churches themselves were trying to get it right, but they struggled with some of the same stuff that we struggle with. And you can't help but dive in and read those letters and learn the things you need to learn because your faith is so tied to him. And when your faith is tied to Jesus, you understand why Jesus often pointed to the Old Testament, right? Why did Jesus point to the genesis of the story with Adam and Eve? Why did Jesus himself uphold and point to the law and the prophets and the fulfillment of those things? It would help you to understand why Jesus did that. So you dive in and you understand better the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and why that was the picture of God the Father that Jesus had this incredible relationship with, that the Father is me and I am in him and he's in me. And, and you dive in. And the more your faith is tied to Jesus for your hope and your future, you can't help, you cannot help but dive into the prophetic books of prophecy that's not already, already been fulfilled in Christ, but of the prophecy that is yet to come. When your starting point is there, when your starting point and your faith is tied to the God who made himself known to you, then you will approach the Word of God. Not with just a reverence, not with just a respect, not with just an awe, but a hunger and a thirst to know Him more. Because this was given to those who's put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. This was given to us to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to equip our faith so we could experience what he called us to experience, so we could live the life he's called us to live. This is the kind of year I want for you. This is the kind of 2023 that I'm praying for this church, for, for our church, and for the people who call this church home that we would understand not only our starting point and maybe reshift or restart or press the restart button, if you will, on our understanding of how this connection of our faith in Christ who has made himself known ties to his holy word. That we would take a whole new approach to it this year. And really begin to see our faith grow. Let's pray together. 
Father God, I just, as I think about your word, I think about the way in which it describes our faith, which is a, an assurance of what we don't know and a confidence in what we haven't seen yet or what we haven't experienced yet. And God, when I think about those words, assurance and confidence, I just can't help but have my heart overflow that the only way to have that is through you. The only way to have that is through this relationship with you. So Jesus, I'm just praying this morning that everyone here that's considering a, a new starting point or a restarting point for their faith would hook their anchor and, 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 and put all their hope and trust in the fact that you have come to make yourself known to us. And that, God, there, that would in, 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 in us would stir a, a thirst and a hunger to get to know you more. A thirst and a hunger, an insatiable desire and drive to dive into the word that you've given us to teach, rebuke, correct, and support, and equip, and train us in you. That's my prayer for 2023, for us, everybody here online, as we move forward. That's your holy Jesus' name. Amen.